I know I've said this before, and I know it's kind of an unpopular opinion, but I do rather like these movies. I've noticed a trend in these three, that there's several things that are done basically because movie, but when I actually stop to think about them, there's a few, there's more to it than that. It's not just because movie. I will say this, though. It's interesting to me that each of the three intros of the first trilogy were clearly demonstrative of exactly the tone of each film. Whereas the intros of these three, while that's somewhat true, I feel it was more accidental in this case. It feels less deliberate. The first one starts with the framing device of the Fellowship, basically. Fellowship of the Ring. And then the second one starts with the flashback, the beginning of the quest. The third one gets right into it. Smaug attacking Lake Town. But that is kind of the tone of the third film in general. There's third film is, again, without question the darkest, and the most brutal, and the most unforgiving. And I want to talk about a concept before I go any further. One comment I've heard as a complaint is that there's no... You know, nobody cares if a character is in danger because in a prequel because we know they're going to be in the sequel and therefore them being in danger means nothing. I can see where that thought process comes from. I really can. I've never quite agreed with it because it is my opinion that a well-done prequel will have that danger be relevant to the character in some way. Maybe they might not die, but they might be hurt or wounded or it may affect them in some way or change their character in some way. In other words, I tend to be one of those the journey matters kind of people. So for me, I don't understand the complaint of prequels don't matter because we know how things will end up. For me, it's more like I want to know how they got to this point. You know, just my mindset. I'm not saying the reverse is an invalid perspective. I'm just saying I've never understood it. And I mention that because there's several scenes in this film where, you know, like, for example, Legolas or other uh, characters who are in uh, the original trilogy are in danger. And it's like, well, I mean, they're, they're going to live, right? I also mention that because there's several scenes they do which deliberately call attention to the characters who are not in the original trilogy and putting them in danger. And, you know, it's interesting to me because several bits of the framework seem to be gleaning, leaning towards the fact that Tariel would have actually died. Because she's an original character. They can get away with that. They can do that. And it would certainly have an impact on Legolas, right? There's food for thought. One thing that's interesting to me, most servants of the enemy... You know, the Witch King, Sauron himself, uh, tend to savor despair. And that was a long-recurring theme in the original trilogy. But what I find interesting here is that Smaug, and this has already been shown, but he especially uh, showcases it here, he tends to enjoy desperation more than anything else. He tends to enjoy it when people struggle to defeat him, knowing that they can't succeed. You know, that, oh, God, we must fight the dragon. And he's just like, yes, fight me, ha, <laughs> ha. And uh, it, it explains a lot of what he does. Note that he buzzes the town several times before he actually starts attacking it. Just to make absolutely sure that they all know exactly what's coming. And there's no escape. 
They're not going to get away from him. At least, if he lived, they wouldn't get away from him. Anybody who gets in a boat and gets away from the town is just going to be an easy target. One fireball and poof, that little boat is gone. So, I have a question for you guys. Do you think that the Master actually believes his own bullcrap? I'm just curious. He seems like he is so self-deluded that he is to use a comment we were using extensively on the Walking Dead series, that he has drunk his own Kool-Aid, that he's bought into his own lie, in other words. And and, and this, uh, it's probably the closest thing to any kind of characterization the Master gets. He's still very one-note. It just makes me wonder if he is that far gone. Lord knows Alfred is not that great. I also have a note here which literally just says, and I'm just going to quote myself word for word, Alfred, comma, ugh. I think that speaks for itself. So the coincidence is a little overt. There's a lot of severe coincidences in these movies. But there's a scene where the Master <clears throat> helps to free Bard, which is appropriate since the Master's the one who imprisoned Bard. I, I just thought that was a nice little moment. It made me grin. So all the dwarves watching the battle, I, sh I shouldn't even call it a battle, watching the slaughter, is a great scene. It helps to hammer it home. I mean, obviously we see the, the buildings burning and the people running, but as usual, that's, that's noise almost to a human consciousness. That's just mute horror. How do you deal with that? Watching the individual people who are just so in shock, that's more powerful on a personal level. It really brings it down, especially because they can't do anything. Even if they were to run full tilt for Lake Town, they wouldn't get there for hours. And once they got there... There's nothing they could do. They are completely powerless. And there's a, an almost more horrifying reality to standing and watching something that you are utterly incapable of doing anything about than to actually standing in the flames. Although I imagine some people would disagree in the moment. But from a film perspective, it really hammers it in. I also want to give praise to Bard. Uh, granted, he's he's got that Legolas-style thing going for him, but he's a hell of a shot. He actually doesn't miss a single shot. It really is just raw desperation, too, which is kind of funny in its own right. Oh, oh excuse me. Excuse me. Oh. And then uh, Smaug just savors the raw desperation of Bard as he's like... like I've got to do this. I, he lets him take the shot. He lets him line up the 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 black arrow. Like, oh yeah, like that's gonna do anything. He again, he wants them to fight against him. He wants them to struggle against him. At no point did it actually occur to Smaug that he might actually be defeated. And then he was. Then he kills the master. Applause. Most of my audience actually broke out into applause when he killed the master. When Smaug fell on him. But then we cut to Thorin, and, and, you know, the dwarves are like, yeah, this is great, this is great. What's interesting is Thorin doesn't have to say a word, but you get his mindset immediately. Because Thorin is thinking, okay, with Smaug dead, there is an undefended, gigantic horde over there. Excuse me, that was actually my alarm to make sure I was doing this video I'm doing right now. I'm really on schedule right now. <laughs> uh, so Thorin is thinking... With the dragon dead, there's nothing stopping us from getting that horde, but there's also nothing stopping anyone else. We're 13 people. If word starts to spread, people are going to come for that treasure. There's a lot of it. And defending all of it is going to be a task. So he's thinking, first and foremost, got to defend the treasure. 
not exactly an invalid perspective, and that's the beginning of a trend. A lot of what Thorin does over the first, hell, like two-thirds of this film, actually probably more like three-fourths of this film, is actually, there's actual logic behind it. There's some reason behind it, but we'll get more into that as we continue to express these things that he's doing. So, I want to mention something, because Keeley and Tariel's relationship, such as it is, is more... Uh, Get some get some screen time in this film. And I know y'all probably already hate me for my comments in The Last Rumination. But what I want to mention here is that he, as of... I mean, there's already some some physical attraction and some mental attraction between the two. Now he has a strong reason to be even more attached to her than he otherwise would be. Because she literally saved his life. I've talked about this concept before. Um, some people seem to think that the only way two people can ever fall in love is if they're going to be, you know, lovers for the rest of their lives, which, I mean, is, of course, the ideal, but those people tend to forget that extenuating circumstances can push you into a, a romantic connection with someone, whether or not there will be a tomorrow to that w romantic connection. And, of course, a, a long-term romantic thing can grow, if you've started with something. So, I mean, there's a lot of permutations. The, the level of the, 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 the variance between extremes and, and the, the variety of possibilities that exist within romantic relationships is, is insane. It, there's so many possibilities, and I think most people just kind of simplify it, which does it a disservice. In this case, Killy, of course, she saved his life, and he, he actually got to see, shall we say, her real self for a moment through the, uh, through the half spirit realm thing. And, so, and of course she came for him. Uh, she, she came back for him to save him. So, he now has a third reason, in addition to the two basic reasons, to really... Come with me, please. Let's go, let's go. You know, and that's why he is the one who reaches out to her. And I just wanted to point that out. Now, uh... Hang on, I had a note here. I thought it was right about here. Mm, we're not there yet, that's right. God, these scenes cut back and forth so much. So, Alfred... Alfred... <laughs> Alfred finally does serve a narrative purpose. He... Okay, so... He is shown in absolute stark contrast to Bard. He is effectively a form of Bard's characterization, and therefore has no true characterization of himself. It's part of why he's a one-note. He remains a one-note. Uh, there's actually a scene later on which briefly teases the possibility of some kind of redemption for him. But no, he's a one-note character, and he is until his death. He only dies in the extended edition, fun fact. A lot of actual additional violence is in the extended edition, which I found interesting. They probably cut that for ratings purposes. So, uh, he is in stark contrast. He is immediately, he switches sides immediately. He lies bald-faced and badly only to save his own hide and doesn't care about anyone else. You know, all, all consistent. Whereas Bard is like, dudes! Uh, we, we see also the Grima and Aragorn parallel where Aragorn is like, no, my lord, no, my lord. Let him go. Now, I asked back then why Aragorn did that, and by now I'm sure some people have given their thoughts on that. I, of course, haven't seen that yet because I'm still in the process of recording my brains out. But at least this time we have some definitive logical reasons why Bard insists on not killing Alfred. First and foremost, 
he is under the laboring under the delusions and it, and many scenes in the future with alfred will indicate this as well that alfred can actually be of some use like the fact that he puts him on watch or he gives him a sword or he tells him to get the women and children to the place you know he tries to he actually does what a good leader would do you, you try to bring someone out and make them part of the group by offering them little bits of trust to try and engender that kind of connection alfred however is a one-note character and thus knocks it away at every turn so that's the first reason the second reason is a little more careful and a little more subtle so obviously he says this quote haven't you had enough of death and yet the really funny thing is that that makes perfect sense but only from that perspective let's switch perspective for a second let's say you're someone who's poor and hungry and has had a miserable life for most of if not all of your life and now your home is on fire and it's cold and you're hungrier and you've just barely escaped with your life and you may not have escaped with all your friends and family and you definitely left behind a lot of your belongings you are cold you're hungry you might be sick you're tired and you're angry and you're probably in pain too and you're definitely afraid uh, in that mindset, it makes perfect sense that they would want to focus on someone, focus all that negativity on someone, and just bleed it out onto them. In this case, literally murdering someone in order to get it out. Now, I'm going to make this clear. I use that term murder very clearly. Well, Alfred is a pathetic individual. He does not actually deserve being killed under these circumstances, in my blunt opinion. Well, I'm, I'm saying that wrong, actually. What I mean is, his death would not be killing there is a distinction I've always held between killing and murder. And whether or not he deserves death is a little more debatable, and that's, that's why I had to correct myself, I actually said that wrong. But them killing him, their reasons for doing it, this is a very common theme in this film in particular, because, and this will tie in a lot into Thorin's case, because it's not necessarily what you do. A lot of it has to do with how you do it, and most importantly, why you do it. So... Maybe he deserves death, and there's certainly plenty of people who would argue that, in character and out. But them killing him would be murder. They're just killing him to, to focus something, to focus all that negativity onto someone, and to try and feel better. And that's their reasoning. And that's murder. I'm sorry. In my opinion, that is a line. And so, this is the second reason why Bard stops them. The third reason is a little more long-term, and I'm not sure it actually occurred to him, but it wouldn't surprise me if it did, because Bard shows several examples of long-term thinking. The third reason for stopping him is, this would set a dangerous precedent. These people have basically just been loosed from the, well, the noose that was around their neck. Pretty much all of the main guard are gone or dead, and uh, so it's just the peasantry now. So now they have the power, and if the peasantry is allowed to do whatever they want to, that can lead to some very dangerous things, especially if what they want to do is murder someone. So this time, Bard stops them from killing the sniveling idiot for good purpose. Now, uh, notice the difference. This is... <laughs> I've already got my note. I've actually already said this. You know, What Thorne is doing isn't out of bounds. It's how and why he's the problem. So notice the way that you know, the, the dwarves come back, and it's like, ah, oh, you're alive, and they approach Thorn, and Thorn's like, go search, find the Arkenstone. The other, and then immediately after that, that is contrasted with a scene of them meeting the other dwarves, and the response is, oh my god, you're alive, yay, hugs, and, and headbutts, and all that other, you know, 
the difference is stark between the two. And again, I, this is this is not me defending Thorin. I just want to make this point clear because it's part of the insidiousness, which I'll talk about on my next page. What Thorin is doing, searching desperately for the Arkenstone, is actually tactically the correct thing to do. Remember, the political, the long-term reason they're here is not to, for their home and whatnot. That's the short term. That's the we want our claim our home. The long-term reason is to get the Arkenstone to to have a dwarven king again, to be able to reunite the seven clans or five clans or whatever they're down to at this point in in time, and to be able to accomplish and do and rebuild the dwarven people. That requires the Arkenstone, or at least it was theorized it required the Arkenstone, but. Uh, Obviously, it wasn't in the end because they left the Arkenstone with Thorin, but I digress. Note, uh, note Legolas is actively kind in his overall behavior to Bard, which I find interesting. And then his reaction makes perfect sense when the, the messenger comes and says, Hey, come back. I mentioned that <clears throat> because, first of all, it's more making Legolas a more positive, a more sympathetic character, which has been happening in the previous film and will continue to happen in this film. But I mention this because he, he without hesitation, agrees to go home, you know, to obey his father, until he's told, oh no, Tariel has to stay. Now, I bring this up because, again, there's actually two reasons for him to stick by Tariel. One is because he has the hots for her. Let's go and be honest about that. But the other is because he's already been pushing against his father more than once. This has already been an established trait. And so he was willing to obey his father and bring the elves home until his father went against another elf, which is the first time that's happened. This is the first time his father has, has shown himself to not care about one of his own kind. And that is unacceptable to Legolas. And I bring that up because that's going to come up later as well. So keep that in the back of your mind somewhere. Uh, there's this huge army that comes out of Dol Goldor. Where the hell did it come from? Like, I, I know this sounds weird, but they actually bothered to kind of establish that Sauron has been building up armies for forever in Mordor, and Saruman had to do all this stuff to build the army. Where did these armies come from? I know it's a small thing, and it, it really only matters for world-building purposes. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. Uh, so... This is something that I kind of danced around in the original trilogy. I don't know if you actually noticed it. I actually stumbled on a couple of my comments and my theory crafting. Because, again, we can theory craft differently in the movies than we can in the books because of the, the significant differences between the two. But one thing I kept dancing around is whether or not Gandalf had a ring. One of the elven rings. Uh, the, the fire one, the ruby one. It's the one I actually had uh, myself once upon a time. And I was dancing around the issue because, you know, maybe it's relevant or maybe it's not, but they finally confirm he does actually have one of the elven rings. And, of course, Sauron seeks to reclaim them. Duh. But I can finally say with definitiveness that this is probably one of the big reasons why Gandalf was so focused on the idea of finding out what happened to the last dwarven ring. It was the only one unaccounted for, and he was worried about that as a bearer of a ring, just like any other bearer of the ring would be to some extent or another. So I kind of like that little touch. So then we have an awesome scene. Really, it is awesome. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why I think watching the films in this order kind of helps or is, is good or whatever. Uh, Galadriel obliterates uh, the orc. This is a type of magic we've actually never seen before. 
Remember, this is a very low tier setting. Galadriel, I've, I've posited before, is probably the most powerful mage of the setting, the most powerful of the wielders of the ring. And I've mentioned back how, back in the uh, original trilogy, how that was a significant part of her character, and also something she was constantly struggling against. And here she is super hesitant to actually use her power. Even the thing she does to obliterate the orc sends off massive shockwaves and lets everyone for a few mile radius know something big just happened. But even Galadriel, especially weakened as she is, is hesitant to fight the Nine at the same time. And then I have a note here which just says the word awesome and is underlined a couple of times because the battle is awesome. We finally see the ring wraiths in full tilt, actually as wraiths, not with the cloaks, but, you know, full wraith form, in full knight regalia, beating the crap out of, well, I shouldn't say beating the crap out of, fighting Saruman and Elrond. And it's a great scene. It's brilliantly done. It really helps to emphasize the strength and level and scale of what is considered high tier for this setting. And it's awesome. It's awesome to see Saruman in action. It's awesome to see Elrond in action. Something we've basically never seen before. And then, so the Nazgul are all defeated. And and it's funny because Gandalf, you know, awakens. And he sees Galadriel. First thing out of his mouth. He's back. He's back. Sauron's back. You know, it's first thing he says. It's so important to him that she knows the truth. That, that, that is, this information gets out. And then Sauron shows himself. Still has a body, still has a form, by the way. That's actually relevant. Um, because, again, the movies are different from the books. And in the movies, Sauron's form was effectively destroyed by Galadriel here, leading to him being formless when it comes to the original trilogy, which is in contrast with how the books were, were portraying that. Which also brings me to Galadriel. <laughs> and Saruman, actually. Notice that Saruman actually looks genuinely terrified at seeing Sauron. And I'm not necessarily calling him out for that, but it is significant and, of course, is basically the beginning of his character arc that he will carry through the next three movies in the original trilogy, because he is afraid. I also pointed out because none of the others show that same level of terror at the sight of Sauron. Galadriel comes up, releases her full power, goes full tilt into him, literally destroys his form and banishes him from the area, and he flees back to Mordor, not to be seen for a few decades. Now, <clears throat> a couple notes about this. Again, it's, it's super awesome. It really is. I love that scene. But uh, we finally see, f probably for the first time, really, why Galadriel fears to use her full power. Not only does it drain the living hell out of her, and leaves her vulnerable and weakened. It's actually possible that she could have died if she had just stayed at a place as poisoned and stained spiritually as Dol Guldur after having used so much of her energy. I, I've had a theory for a while that Galadriel, to use video gamey terms, doesn't have an MP bar, so she only casts from her HP, because that would kind of explain several instances of how she functions. But uh, we, we finally see Saruman, and what's really funny is... Well, actually, hang on. One, one, one more thought. Sorry, I, I just noticed it. One more note about my thing here about Galadriel. One interesting thing about Galadriel is her powers, every time they are shown, are fully destructive. Now, I find that very interesting. It could be coincidental, but I like the idea that someone who has reached that level of power within a low-tier setting like this can only destroy. It is so strong that all you can do is direct it at what you want to destroy because it will just obliterate whatever's in its path. 
like it did with Saur uh, Sauron's form. And the orc. <laughs> so then Saruman is, once again, right. The enemy can never go back to full strength without the One Ring. And we all know the One Ring's gone, so that's not an issue. So Sauron is now weakened and banished. So I will now deal with him. And I point that out because he's right about the former, but he is utterly wrong about the latter. And this, of course, naturally leads into exactly why he becomes the way he is within the original trilogy as he return, as he goes to face Sauron. And I can just picture what happened. Because Saruman, in this, at this point in time, and Sauron, as weakened as he was by this, that, in my opinion, that's no contest. I think Saruman would win that fight. Especially with how we saw him taken on the ring race. That was awesome. I just, I'm sorry I had to re-emphasize that, but it was, it was such an awesome scene. But, that's not all that Sauron has as a power. Remember how the Witch King, in the movies, again, remember how the Witch King defeated Gandalf. It was through despair. As Gandalf despaired, the Witch King grew stronger and could, and could best him. So Sauron is confronted by Saruman in Mordor, which at this point in time is probably already beginning the process of rebuilding. And Sauron shows him his, his lands and his armies and how, he's already, how people already bow knee to him in the east with the Haradrim and on all the rest. What possible hope could Saruman have against him? And he leeches away at him leaves him in that despair and then gives him a faint, simple ultimatum. You can try to destroy me or you can serve me. So then Gandalf, as soon as he is uh, as soon as he is taken back by Radagast, he's like, I gotta go. I gotta go right now. He gets his staff from Radagast. Nice touch, by the way. Um... And uh, he heads for Erebor first thing. I love how Gandalf, you know, okay, we've dealt with Sauron. Now we got to deal with the Erebor situation. Things are still bad. I'm going to point this out here. Uh, Gandalf later mentions the significance of Erebor to the enemy. And it's something that can't be understated. Because it really isn't about the treasure for Sauron. Ultimately, they don't, he and his forces don't have a huge use for those kind of treasures. But Erebor has other treasures, like very well-positioned strategic significance. It basically is the doorway between the West and the East, just past the Misty Mountains. And it would pretty much open the gate for Angmar to have a completely... It, it, would, open, it would basically defend a front so that Angmar could start rebuilding. And, of course, could be used to strike against no less than th three immediate and five total forces of the Free Peoples from that point of strength. And it is, of course, immensely defensible. So, yeah, Erebor is very valuable to the enemy. And he is, of course, probably pushing for that even more than usual, since he just suffered a defeat. It is also something I want to mention, that it's possible that his defeat at the hands of Elrond and Saruman and Galadriel might be part of why Sauron is as cautious as he is when it comes to his future dealings with everyone. Because he has been, he has been, he has been handled, handed a fairly significant defeat and doesn't want to go through that again. So, one of the things uh, that I love, you know, so Thorin, of course, continues to descend, and Balin, the, the intellectual one, you know, the, the, the guy, the wizened person, the scholar, is the one who asks the armor-piercing question. 
Do you doubt the loyalty of anyone here? Note Thorin doesn't actually answer him, by the way. But Balin is the one who posits it and is like, look. Not that it needs re-emphasizing, but I love how we can look at Thorin here and contrast him with the previous two movies. While he has shown some small signs of dragon sickness before, this really hammers it home and will continue to do so. I also love when Bilbo is willing to give him the Arkenstone. And the only reason he doesn't is because he believes, and he is totally correct, that it would just make things much, much worse. I point that out because it's a very important thing to keep in mind for Bilbo, that the Arkenstone is not actually valuable to him. Thorin is valuable to him. Some have also argued that one of the reasons that Bilbo is relatively resistant to the dragon sickness is because he's already got something like that with the ring. And then there is such an amazing scene. It's, it's actually probably, I'd say, my favorite scene in this particular movie, where Thorin, who is in the midst of dragon sickness, it goes over and is like, what is that? What do you have? And, of course, we, the audience, are led to believe, oh, God, he was looking at the Arkansas. No, it's just, it's just a little seed from Bayorn's garden. And he says, I'm going to plant it in my garden. And it's, the fir- it's also the first thing to actually pierce Thorin's dragon sickness. If not for things getting in the way... He might have been able to recover right then and there, actually. And I like that idea. I like the concept that, if not for events intervening, Thorne would have had the willpower to overcome it then and there. Which, of course, brings me to Dragon Sickness. I said I'd talk about it. I've brought it up a couple of times in both previous movies. I'm going to just give you my interpretations of Dragon Sickness, because it is left very vague and probably on purpose. So this is all my interpretation in theory crafting, and therefore is not definitive fact. I only emphasize that because sometimes people mistake it when I'm saying something and positing it with confidence, because it is my theory and therefore I believe it, as if it was actual fact, which is not what I'm doing. The reason I, I, I make that point, by the way, is because I don't like saying, in my opinion, dot, 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 in my opinion, dot, dot, dot. It's my belief that dot, dot, dot. I don't like prefacing every single sentence I say with that. Usually I try to do the opposite, and I preface something with saying, this is definable fact, and then say it, as opposed to the opposite. So therefore you know by absence that anything I'm saying is just my opinion. Unless I say definitive fact, blah, blah, blah. Now, this is not definitive fact. On the same page? Fantastic. Dragon sickness. So my sister had a concept that it was a fully mental uh, disability, but when I talked to her about it and we discussed it back and forth, we both agreed it was actually a magical affliction. In other words, a metaphysical uh, affliction. So it's easy to describe. In fact, they describe it quite well. It is an influx of fixative greed that it ruins an individual's personality and self and ability to think safely and actually drives them slowly but surely into actual insanity where they just do not think properly and uh, is a form of metaphysical poison as well a spiritual poison if you will which you know makes a degree of sense because we actually have something else that does spiritual poisoning within this setting the ring that is, in fact, one of the greatest powers of the ring, as I've discussed uh, extensively back in the first trilogy, is that it, it will poison you. It will poison your soul, if you will. And we know that the whole... Well, I shouldn't say we know. I, by my theory... Blah, 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 um, 
the whole spiritual poisoning is a thing within this setting, within the confines of the movies. The Mirkwood is a great example of that, and, and just the realms in general. The fact that things have gotten so much worse by the time that the original trilogy has started, because this metaphysical poison has been poisoning the entire spiritual realm for years at that point. A quick aside, by the way. I don't have a note about it later, but I want to remember it now. There's a scene where he puts on the ring and he's rushing through, and we see orcs fighting elves. And it's great, because the orcs are stark black and the elves are stark white. It's, it's, a, it's a simple thing, but it's actually the first time we've seen anyone other than normal people and elves within the spirit realm. And I like that we have confirmed the fact that the orcs are basically purely spiritually black. You know, just horrible, evil deathness. So, here's the question then. Is dragon sickness something that is spread by dragons? Or is it named after them? I personally think it's the latter. I think that it is named for that because dragons themselves, at least normally in common, in common knowledge, suffer from dragon sickness. Smaug clearly had dragon sickness, and that was demonstrated several times. Uh, back within, uh, back when the previous movies actually re-emphasized in this movie how how uh, there's several lines that Thorin said that are actually said with Smaug's voice to help further the point. So, Balin puts it well too. You know, a fierce and jealous love of wealth of a things that erases all sense and reason. Which brings me to an interesting thought. I don't actually have much else to say about dragon sickness, other than the fact that, for me, it's the kind of thing that, to use a D&D &D term, would require a will save to prevent. You know, you, you don't just... You, you don't... Your mind isn't fixed. Your, your body doesn't heal until your will, your soul, which, you know, spirits are a thing within this setting, so your spirit is capable of pushing out and preventing this thing from continuing to poison you, and then you can regain yourself as Thorin actually does later. But the last thing I want to posit is we see the stark contrast between Thorin while afflicted by it and Thorin while not afflicted by it. A lot of the second movie was kind of showing us the best of Thorin, and a lot of the third movie is showing us the worst of Thorin. I have a weird question for you. If dragons do suffer from dragon sickness, what is a dragon like when not suffering from dragon sickness? Now that may sound like a weird question, but hear me out. We saw that the orcs were pitch black, right? When in the spirit realm. And we see that certain things are, have shadows of black because they are affected by the darkness that Sauron and his ilk per permeate. And yet when Bilbo has the ring on, Smaug does not have that darkness on him. In other words, both physically, and it is mentioned through uh, dialogue in the first film and the second film, Smaug is not actually a servant of the enemy. He is not of the darkness. He is a neutral force that happens to be this big evil dragon. But you know what I mean? You, you see where I'm going with this? So, if this is true, if all these pieces are true, is it possible that there is a, a real Smaug that is not this cruel, malevolent force but instead is kind of completely different. And again, seeing the contrast between Thorin with and without the sickness kind of shows you how incredibly different and stark those two personalities can be. Just food for thought. So, uh, fun fact. I like the fact that several people, uh, and especially Alfred, push Bard to be like, we should go get that gold. And Bard says, no. 
Now, that may sound weird, but I really like that because that's actually very smart. That gold may be useful later for rebuilding and buying supplies and helping these people get on with their lives, but it won't be useful now. And now is the problem. It's mentioned several times, and we see, thanks to the snow and whatnot, it's winter. It's winter, and they have no freaking food. They're going to die inside of a week if they don't fix this problem. And gold is not going to fix this problem within a week. It's a nice touch. And then Thranduil shows up. Now this is interesting for three reasons. First of all, Thranduil uh, is already mentioned as being a trade partner with Lake Town. So this is kind of a normal thing. So Thranduil would probably have been aware of these events and the sight of him being present here would not be super alien to these people, because again, I mean, they probably have never seen Thranduil himself, but the elves? Well, they trade with the elves, right? So, okay, I'm with that. Second reason it's interesting is, of course, the fact that uh, they come bringing a freaking army. That's going to build up to a point later. I just want you to keep that in the back of your mind. The third point, and the part point I like most right in the moment, is he says, I'm not, br I'm not here for you. I don't care about you. I'm here to get my freaking gems back. That's all I came here for. It's the only thing I care about. And that's why I brought lots of food to give you. I bring this up because it's another aspect of Thranduil's more dynamic character than just being a good guy or a bad guy. Because he's obviously lying. He did bring this food for these people and saved their lives. And he didn't have to do it, and he got nothing out of it. He doesn't need these people. He came here to take his gems back, and to help his people. And yet he is so, I hate to use this as a derogatory, but it fits, he is so elven, let's call it high elven, I think that's a better way to put that, he is so high elven, that he cannot even bring himself to admit that he is trying to help these poor downtrodden people. He later has a speech about, yes, they'll die, because they're mortals, they'll die eventually, they might die a hundred years from now, but they'll die, who gives a crap? He tries to... It, he, it, one of the, 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 the recurrent threads of Thranduil is he keeps clinging to that idea that the mortals are beneath him, and yet his actions actually contradict that more than once, including here. It's a nice touch, and it helps make him a more interesting character than, say, Alfred. I'm sorry, I keep bashing him, but God! <laughs> get off my screen! Um, so then Bard tries to negotiate. Now... I find myself wondering if the real Thorin, the one not suffering from dragon sickness, would actually have negotiated, because he's not exactly a diplomatic person, and he's not fond of Thranduil. He basically refused flat out to deal with Thranduil. However, I think he would have, for two reasons. One, Thorin, the real Thorin, is shown to be able to make the hard choice for the right reason. And, as I posited, this is again theory, I think he would have dealt with Thranduil back in the second movie if he felt he had no choice. If that was all that was available to him, he would have, it would have sucked, but he would have swallowed his pride and been like, all right, fine, whatever. But the other, the other reason I think he would have, he would have gone ahead and done it is because he is very, very loyal. It's actually probably one of his biggest character traits. And the thing that he mentioned all the way back in the first film and has been a recurring theme since is that he values loyalty. And of course, Bilbo vouched for him. So stubbornness or no, I think he would, especially if he was called out on you gave your word, be like, okay, okay, yes, yes, I will, I will honor my bond. Now, 
this is kind of how the the in, the sickness, the dragon sickness, is so insidious, because I, I don't write, I didn't write down specifics, and my memory is kind of jumbled right now because I've, I've just watched like twenty hours of Lord of the Rings stuff over the last five days. But there's a few specific things he does that again make sense. His his comments are not illogical. He's not to the point of total insanity yet. He is actually making sense, and a lot of what he does and says makes sense. It's just that he's doing it for all the wrong reasons, and everyone around him can kind of see that. And when pushed, the sickness pushes back. There's a scene where he gives the mithril shirt to Bilbo. Which is a good scene, actually. And then... (laughs) And then he actually literally starts... The dragon sickness, for all its insidiousness, for all of the way that it subverts who and what you are, is also blatantly overt when it boils down to it. It it is similarly unmistakable in its blatantness as he walks away and literally says the same line Smaug did with Smaug's voice underlying it. So there's this great scene. There's a lot of good character scenes in this piece. I think it's one of the reasons why I like this film, despite its flaws. There's a great scene with Bilbo and Bofer. Buffer, excuse me. Um, Bilbo's tying up the rope because he's got this plan. And Boffer, of course, sees him. He's not an idiot. And then, you know, the two of them banter and talk back and forth for a bit. And finally, Bilbo says, I will see you in the morning. And Boffer says, goodbye, Bilbo. And despite everything, he still wishes him well. Just like the last time he saw him leave and wished him well. There's no hard feelings there. And, and I kind of like that. It's, it's a really good character moment. I like, again, as well, how Bilbo manages to think around things yet again. And manages to find an alternate solution. Because he takes the Arkenstone and he tries to bargain. Okay, let's do this. Let's make this work. Um, and, of course, then Thorin finds out about this and tries to fling Bilbo over the catapults. And, wow. <laughs> Notice that while they're a little bit shocked at what Thorin is saying and doing, they will not let him hurt Bilbo. They, they actually move to physically restrain Thorin from hurting Bilbo. I want to comment on something really quick. Some people have commented on the fact that the other dwarves are just a little bit too loyal to Thorin in the face of their own characters. But I think that makes perfect sense for two big reasons. Reason number one, I think the dragon sickness is affecting them. Not the same. Not to the same extent and not to the the same thing, but I think it is also affecting them. I think it's helping to ensnare them, if you will. I mean... Thror didn't accomplish all that he did in a vacuum, did he? But the second reason is, of course, much more obvious, and the one that I barely feel the need to bring up. They're loyal. They're loyal to him. They know this is wrong, but they're dwarves, who, in addition to being stubborn, are very, very loyal. Loyal to a fault, actually, I believe is the quote. So, it is only the fact that he tried to move against one of his own, Bilbo, that actually caused them to finally be like, whoa, no, no, we're not letting that happen. So then Dane shows up. Dane's a good lad. I actually like him. Um, <laughs> he actually did a lot of good fighting in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, not the movies, of course, the, the ancillary works, but he's a good lad, but he is a consummate dwarf. If you were to look up dwarf in the dictionary, you would see a picture of Dane there. He is that dwarf. 
Um, and is pretty, it is, it is, comes across as quite a bit of a cliche, but I'm okay with that because the actor does a really good job of portraying it. That sort of weird, like, friendly antagonism that he does so perfectly. And so I'm willing to give it a pass. I, so then the Battle of Five Armies starts. Um, I don't have a lot of notes, as usual, for the actual big battle sequences, but I want to say something. We saw a lot of men fighting in Lord of the Rings. We saw the armies of Rohan, we saw the armies of Gondor, and we saw, of course, you know, the orcs. But we never really saw the elves fight, except for a few brief pits, bits at Helm's Deep. And we never saw the dwarves fight. We saw Gimli and Legolas, and that was about it, really. So I want to give them praise for the fact that they fight differently. I mean, yeah, there's the big grand melee, but the, 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 there's a lot that was done to differentiate them from the human armies we've seen so far. And it was nice. I loved it. And I loved all the little details. And I, again, I'm not going to list all of them, but like the anti-arrow uh, artillery that they were shooting, the extremely regimented patterns of the elves and how they were perfectly in rhythm, and how the elves actually had a patterned response to blunt a cavalry charge, and how the dwarves were able to do the phalanx maneuver. It was, it was just really, really, really good stuff. I loved all of it. Now, and I also love how there's this great point that's shown that the elves and dwarves, when fighting together, are a frickin' death ball. They just roll over the orcs, and they just start crushing them. If if it wasn't for the fact that there's the second wave of orcs and the third wave of orcs, the, the elves and dwarves probably would have just swept the house there. It's great, because it kind of gets across the point of the Lord of the Rings uh, movies as a whole, that united, we are way the hell stronger than we are separate. You know, kind of a simple theme, but there it is. Which brings me to an interesting point. Sauron is not devious. Let me explain what I mean by that. His style and approach to thinking, both tactically and in terms of manipulation, is very blunt. I talked about this a lot in the original trilogy, uh, Ruminations. You know, how he's like, rah, giant armies and sweeping destruction and just, ah, go. And the closest thing he came to being devious was the despair he could inflict upon people to help empower him and his minions. But he was the, Rah! it was Saruman was the one who was manipulating and conniving, right? I bring that up because I want you to sit back for a moment and consider the politics of this before the orcs show up. We have a small group of men, an army of dwarves, and an army of elves. This is a powder keg of epic proportions that could have led to a war that would have probably spread across most of Middle-earth between the various political and racial alliances of the Iron Hills and the Wood Elves and the Men of Dale and the Men of Lake Town, this would have been bad. This would have been a World War I situation with everyone fighting everyone else and the thing just spreading and spreading. And Sauron could have just sat back and watched. But that's not how he thinks. That's not how he functions. He uses a different strategy, and it's not an invalid one, it's just a very Sauron one. Rather than, I'm going to let my enemies crush each other and win the war for me, it was more, I'm going to let my enemies all get into one spot, and then I'm going to crush them. Because his strategy was, I just have to beat their armies, and then I win. And once I have crushed their armies, there's going to be no opposition in the area. I get to take uh, Erebor. I get to start rebuilding Agmar. I win. It's cool. 
again, it's not an invalid strategy, but it's a very blunt strategy. There's no complexity. There's no deviousness. There's no, aha, and now I have you. It's just, all right, you're all here, and now I kill you. It is very funny to me, though, because notice that when the, the orcs finally show up, the dwarves, the dwarves and elves immediately stop fighting, first of all. I like that. Second of all, the dwarves turn and are like, okay, let's go, and just immediately go to fight the orcs. Very dwarven. And the elves are like, uh, what do we do, what do we do? Which is also very elven. And of course, then they, then they unite and start fighting the orcs. In other words, he basically got them to unite forces against him, and pretty much directly led to his defeat. <laughs> so... This big, awesome battle is happening. Big, awesome, big, awesome battle. There's a scene where Bard uh, leads troops to save his family. I like that scene because it helps to emphasize that Bard is not a Mario. I know that sounds weird, but he's not. He's not some big, pious, I am good guy all the time. He is willing to lead soldiers to their deaths to save his family. And in the cold calculus of being a leader and doing the hard thing for the right reason, that's the wrong thing to do. I'm not saying that I wouldn't make the same choice. I never claimed to be a good leader myself. It's just a nice little uh, addition to his character. And then there's the scene where Alfred, maybe Alfred will finally redeem himself. Nope. <laughs> nope. Uh, and then he dies. Very horribly, actually. Alfred's death. I just have a note here that just says Alfred's death. Wow, that is not a pleasant way to go. But, you know, it's cool. He deserved to die, right? At least this way it wasn't murder. <laughs> this way it was choking. <clears throat> so there's the battle. It's waging on. And Dwalin comes back to Thorin and, and hits him full tilt. Now, Dwalin has always been the closest one to Thorin, really. I mean, Balin was his advisor, but Dwalin... That's his blood brother right there. I mean, not literally, but you know what I mean. His, his, his brother by bond, right? And he hits him full tilt. And Thorin is just sitting on the throne. I want to make this point because, for reasons I'll get into in a little bit, Thorin and his company shouldn't actually be... Like, like their introduction into the battle is not that significant of a thing. Obviously, they do join the battle and then end up winning the battle. But I don't think that they won the battle purely because 13 additional dwarves decided to enter. Although, we'll get to that later. My point being, from a tactical perspective, us, these 13 guys joining the battle is not a big significant thing. But that's not why it matters. These are dwarves. Loyal to a fault. And yet they're all... Thorin is just sitting on his throne as his own people, who came at his summons, who are here to help him fight and bleed and die. This, I think, is the biggest moment of contrast. This is the worst that Thorin is, and the furthest into the sickness that he has shown. It is also worth noting, of course, that Dwalin kind of cuts through to it, too. Dwalin manages to cut through everything. This is the second moment. Uh, Bilbo managed, and now Dwalin manages to cut through it and be like, Thorin, look. And the best Thorin can manage is, is to beg of him to leave before he does something that he does not want to do, a.k.a. killing his, his, his killing Dwalin. So then, there's a scene which I've heard a lot of people dislike, and I don't understand why. Uh, my sister and I both really liked the scene where Thorin is standing on the pool 
of cooled gold out in the main hall. And he's he's it's just it's just this giant slab of gold. That's gonna be a hell of a thing to move when they finally need to get it out of there. And he's just looking around at it like and it's warping and distorting, and he's literally starting to hallucinate as his spirit is effectively being swallowed, being crushed by the dragon sickness. He literally sees the shadow of a dragon moving through the gold. And he hears all these voices. Now, let me give you a little bit of an insight. When you hear random voices in the background of a, of a scene that's edited, those aren't done randomly. Uh, well, okay, for the most part, in, in a well-done work, those aren't done randomly. The people in charge, there's someone or someones who have to say, what quotes exactly do we want to be showing in the background? And they pick them very specifically. I bring that up because it's a lot of different quotes from a lot of different people. But one of the, the, the last two, there's three quotes right at the end. One from Bilbo, and then another from Bilbo. And that's what finally starts to get through to him. He finally starts to acknowledge what's happening to him as he sees his other self being swallowed by the gold. And it starts to horrify him, the reality of what's happening to him. And that horror gives him a little bit of push. And then the last quote he hears is of Gandalf. And then he throws the crown off of him. And I love that. Distant shot, very quiet. Just, clink, 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 just throws the crown off. It's a very powerful scene, in my opinion. Obviously... You know, Bilbo and his friendship giving Thorin some of the strength to resist this. Yeah, I'm with that. We've literally already seen that. I wonder if Gandalf literally gave him some additional strength to resist that. It wouldn't surprise me, actually, and it would be a very Gandalf thing to do. But I prefer the idea that he didn't. Because I like the idea that Thorin is able to, of his own of his own willpower, resist the dragon sickness and fight it off. Just my preference. So then, they charge off, and the movie treats it as a big moment. Now, I have a bunch of notes here, and I'm just going to try and summarize them, because I know exactly what they are. The movie treats it as... A, so my initial note was, the movie treats it a big moment, but it isn't. They're just 13 guys. They're not going to change the battle. They don't matter. It is a significant moment, though, for two reasons. Number one, this is a big character moment. The dwarves are finally united again. The company is finally united again. Their loyalty is paid off. Thorin is himself again. And Dane sees Thorin come out and he's like, Yeah! And they, they form this wonderful vanguard and just charge into the Orcish lines and, and do some serious damage. But then I'm just sitting back here thinking, How could 13 people change the, the, the course of a battle? And then I started arguing with myself on it. Because... They could change the course of battle. See, I had this derogatory note right there. Why is it that Thorn is the only one who thinks tactically about defeating their enemy? But then I started thinking about it. This is a bunch of dwarven soldiers who are probably not really used to thinking tactically, and Dane, whose weapon is a giant war maul, and who literally headbutts armored orcs in order to defeat them. I don't think Dane is thinking tactically. I don't think any of the dwarves are thinking tactically. Thorin, however, has shown to have that kind of tactical thinking and it being kind of unusual for him. So actually, what has just happened is they basically just gained a leadership bonus and are going to start using actual tactics to defeat their enemy rather than just fight and we fight and we fight and we fight. So, okay, Thorin's inclusion of the battle does have a significant effect on the strategy. And it does. If you pay attention, when this is skipping forward a little bit, but when he goes up to Ravenhill, or was it Ravenhill? Ravenhill? Yeah, it's Ravenhill. And goes after Azog, Azog and his people stop using those little things to, to give orders. 
Now, this may sound weird, but if you don't have orders, your army isn't going to be particularly effective. I know that sounds kind of like a duh, but I also feel like people don't fully understand how much that matters. It's one of the reasons why I applauded the fact that they had that giant totem thing where they could give the different signals to show, we want you to do this, we want you to do this, we want you to do this, because it's a way of coordinating the entire army with the limited uh, technology of the times. But you notice when they go up there, even though it takes him a long time to defeat Azog, he abandons that. He says, yeah, I don't need that anymore. I don't need to give orders anymore. And though we never see it, the battle down below is won. So, significant in inclusion in the battle. The next thing we see, to, to further talk about this, is the fact that the, uh, the, the morale boost that this would add to people is not insignificant. Morale is a very important thing when it comes to a fighting force. And then we add into the teamwork equation. I've mentioned before how these guys are low tier. You know, they're way below the Fellowship, and they are. Even in this battle, they do far less than Legolas and Gimli individually would do in battles in Helm's Deep or at Pelennor Fields. But they are coordinated. Almost everything they do is not like this dwarf defeats a guy, it's this dwarf defeats a guy with his and his help. And then he helps the next guy who helps him defeat a dwarf, and he helps the next guy and the next guy who help him defeat a dwarf. The teamwork aspect there is a nice touch, and so it means that their inclusion is at least a, a net positive on the battle, which I like. There's a great scene... Um, I'm not going to talk too much about it because it's kind of a hot-button topic in life right now, but I, I am not going to let this sit by and not comment on it. There's a great scene where one of the women shows up. I don't remember her name. Forgive me. I don't think she's actually given a name. And she says, why don't we stand with our men in life and in death? Come on! And she grabs a weapon, and a lot of the women are like, yeah! And they grab weapons, and some of the kids grab weapons, and some of the old grab weapons. And so all these people who had been huddled here for defense, rather than staying huddled while the battle goes on, charge out into it. It's a great moment, and I love it. And not just because Alfred ends up dying shortly thereafter. Tee hee hee. So... So like I said, uh, their attack at Ravenhill does perfectly succeed at what they wanted, even though it took them forever to kill Azog. They do stop the orders. Yay. And Thranduil. Thranduil withdraws. Now his speech to Tariel is interesting, because what he is saying is true. You know, He's like, you think you're what the hell love is? You think you're in love with this dwarf? Because again, she's not. I'm just going to call that out. She is not in love with this dwarf. She is falling for him. She is definitely feeling the beginnings of that. And that's why her comments also ring true, because there is a possibility there. And, of course, she calls him out on being a loveless creature. And I don't think she meant that romantically. She is calling out how distant, how cold, how empty Thranduil has become. And it's implied, although never stated outright, that that's because of the loss of his wife up in Angmar that he has grown distant ever since. And this has been a recurring thing for some time. Which brings me to the second Legolas point I mentioned earlier. So, Legolas earlier was willing to go against his father's orders because his father's orders were against an elf, and that was unacceptable. Here, he actually sees his father try to physically attack another elf. Now, yes, it is Tariel. Yes, he has the hots for her. Yes, that's relevant. But it is not the only reason Legolas stands up to his father. His father was about to physically attack and possibly kill another elf. That's the line. And that's why Legolas is like, no, and stands right in front of her and says, you're going to have to go through me to hurt her. That is not happening. 
And that's also what gets Thranduil's attention. Because Thranduil does demonstrate he cares about his son. Much later, skipping ahead of my notes here, he actually goes and finds them. And the question is posited, why? I mean, he, he and his forces were withdrawing. Well, the answer is so obvious. Because he cares about his son. He just hasn't let himself in a very long time. And, of course, uh, her being basically banished from this gives her something that Keeley has had all this time. Well, and by all this time, I mean since the beginning of the movie. I mentioned there were three parts to their growing relationship. There was the initial physical attraction, there was the mental bonding, but then there needs to be something else there, like a spark. You know, if you have wood and you have air, you don't have a fire, right? There needs to be a spark there. And in his case, it was her saving his life. Now, in her case, it's him... I mean, obviously, he's probably, you know, a big, heroic, fighting for his people kind of thing, but the more relevant part is she now has nothing left. When you are in a situation where you have you have no home to go to and you have just been basically banished and you're screwed, you tend to cling to what you have left. Uh, some of some people who have been watching my streams recently, and by recently I mean like a month ago by the time you're watching this, might recognize this as Kenny's boat. In other words, you got you got to have that one thing to keep going. And so now she has one thing to keep her going and nothing else, and that's Keeley and her hope for whatever might be there. And then Feely dies. I mean, this is skipping forward massively, but again, I don't have many thoughts about the battles. Uh, damn. It's it's a very well done scene. It's it's an emotional gut punch. It's just bam, Feely's dead. Toss him off the thing, and then Keely freaking loses it. Uh, Azog's fighting style throughout the course of all three films actually has always been brute strength. He's bigger than most orcs, and he's got a lot of strength, and he almost always uses some big blunt weapon, um, and that's very much emphasized in most of his fighting here as well. Um. Legolas becomes Doom Guy. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna point that out there. <laughs> I think it's as ridiculous as everyone else, the stuff he pulls towards the end here. He literally just turns into Doom Guy from Doom 4 and just like, yeah, just So I'm gonna share something that is is actually wrong. I'm gonna give an opinion that I know is wrong, but it's still my opinion and I still like it better than the truth. Okay. So we know what the five armies are, but I like the idea, and I have for some time, that the Fifth Army is actually the reinforcements from the Orcs. Because that just kind of makes more sense to me from a, from a, from a scene-building perspective. I mentioned back in my previous video how, as the armies were showing up, I was doing this. You know, there's the Second Army, there's the Third Army. I was doing this to my sister. So, you know, we got to the point where it's like, there's the First Army, there's the Second Army, there's the Third Army, and then the Orcs show up, and then I do this. And if you're paying attention, that was like 40 minutes ago in the movie. And so, like I said in my previous thing, she, many times she's like, where's the Fifth Army? Where's the Fifth Army? Brother, where's the Fifth Army? And she started getting worried. And then there's that wonderful scene where you see the Fifth Army start storming over the hill, and she's just like, and then I just kind of quietly go, and she's like, oh my god, there's another orc army. And I'm like, yeah. And so for me, that has more impact than the fifth army being the frickin' eagles in Bayarn who just win. <laughs> and I'm just going to comment on this. 
freaking eagles. I mean, I like the fact that it's Radagast. That actually makes it more impacting to me, that Radagast brought in the eagles and Bayorn and helps them. That 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 has more impact to me. But god damn it, the freaking eagles. <laughs> they really do solve every problem. I'm willing to again forgive Azog as a character, even though he was a very typical Bond villain, basically a one-note villain, because at least he was used for good purpose for other characters. And I've talked about this in the first film and in the second film. Here is the first time he's used for something, because first of all, his duel with Thorin is great, I think. Um, and I also love the fact that this is the... So each time Azog has beaten Thorin, uh, basically by playing to his strengths, big, strong, bam, and Thorin has just been basically fighting him bluntly, one-on-one. -on -one. Which, if you're paying attention, is exactly what Dane's army back down below was doing to the orc army. Just, ah, not actually thinking your way through the situation. So now that Thorin has demonstrated he can do that by going after the head, he demonstrates that again with Azog personally. I love the scene where he gets the thing, you know, tosses him the mace, and then just steps off the ice. It's brilliant. When we were seeing this in the theater for the first time, the whole audience just broke into applause. Um, I admit I did my usual thing, because I tend to pick up on things a little quicker than other people in the audience, and I, I'm not saying that as bragging, I hate it. Because what happened is I started bursting out laughing as soon as I realized what he was doing, which was when he reached down and grabbed the mace, and I'm like, ha ha ha, and I was the only one laughing in the entire theater. It is so damn embarrassing when that happens. But then, he tosses it back, and then he tapes the step back, and the guy, and Dazok starts falling, and then everyone else in the audience is like, yeah! So, you know, then I could not feel embarrassed. <laughs> But there is one problem here. See, Azog and Thorin are clearly nemeses to each other. They both are, view the other as the nemesis. And that's been very clear and very apparent through all three films. Thing is, Thorin viewing Azog as his nemesis is well-established, well-written, part of his character, part of other characters, and is significant for the whole of the piece. Azog has no reason to think of him as a nemesis. There is no establishment, no work, and no effort put in whatsoever for Azog to just kind of hate Thorin. The only thing that could be said is that he chopped off his arm, but that's never even frickin' mentioned, other than the fact that it happened. He, I will get the dwarf that took my arm. No, that's never even hinted at, not even a single line. He just thinks of that Thorin as his nemesis for whatever frickin' reason. And I feel that was a bit of a shame, because it could have added more to what is effectively another one-dimensional character. So then Thorin dies, and yeah, that one hit me. I mean, you know, you know it's coming, but it doesn't matter. And I love how his fondest wish at his final moments, the last thing he wanted to do, now that he's saved his people, now that he's killed Azog, he wants to apologize to Bilbo. And he sees him as like, oh, there's just this relief. Thank God, it's you, Bilbo. I, I need to apologize. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. It, it was not me, I swear. I couldn't stop it. And he has a great quote. If more people valued home above gold, the world would be a merrier place. And then, and, and Bilbo can't even deal with it. He can't begin to cope with it. And not only was Thorin his friend, but this is something I've actually, I wanted to mention in the first film, but I decided to save it for here, because I think here is the moment when this fact becomes truly impacting. Thorin was Bilbo's first friend. I mean, he probably had acquaintances and, and, and you know, people he knew, neighbors, that kind of a thing back in the Shire. I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't. But a real friend. 
someone who he truly values as and values their friendship. Thorin was his first. And so Bilbo has never had to lose a friend like this. And then there's this perfect scene where, Gandalf, where Bilbo's just sitting there and there's no dialogue. Bilbo just sits there. Gandalf sits by him and starts emptying his pipe. And it's so appropriate, too, because Gandalf started all this. He started all this because he was worried about the ring and he was worried about Smaug. And now he's there seeing the results of his actions and the death and pain and consequences, you know, the, the positive and negative consequences of what he has done. And there's this quiet undercurrent that Gandalf now has to live with that. There's no words. I love it. I love it. One thing I want to comment on. Tariel has this scene where she's grieving over Achilles' body, and she has this line, you know, I, I don't want this pain. Why does this hurt me so much? And Thranduil's response is, because it was real. Now, I'm rolling my eyes at that. But, I have to add, it was actually real. It may not have been Tuwov. It may not have been a lasting, real relationship. But there was a genuine and real connection that the movies bothered to establish and then reinforce across two movies between those two characters. So I actually agree with him. It was real, and it could have been something amazing. And the fact that there was the potential for a true relationship, a step above that, that will never happen now, that makes that pain all the more horrible when you think about it. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, Thranduil stays because he cares about his son. And he actually pushes Legolas towards the Dúnedain, more establishing of the original trilogy there. I don't have much else to say. You know, he goes back to Bag End. We see Lobelia, or Lobelia, I've heard it pronounced both ways, uh, for the first time. He mentions that great line, Who is Thorin? Who's this Thorin Oakenshield? He was my friend. His first friend. And he retires to an empty house. And yet it's not all dark and gloom and horrible, because it then cuts to him in the present day with a filled house, with lots of things, lots of light. And I, I think that's so much more significant because what is one of the last things Thorin told him? Go back to your home, tend your garden, plant your tree, sit on your chair, read your books. And I think Bilbo's been doing that ever since in honor of his fallen friend. A very nice touch. They actually used the exact same audio clips towards the end there from Fellowship of the Ring. So it really is literally the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring there as Gandalf arrives and, you know, the, all the events of those movies start. It was a great way to end the prequels, in my opinion. Uh, kind of similar to something Rogue One would do later on. And I have to admit, I almost regret doing the trilogies, excuse me, the sexology in this order, because I immediately wanted to go back and rewatch Fellowship. <laughs> if I had time, I would. I hope you have enjoyed my... Ruminations on these last six movies. It has taken a lot out of me. I have been doing nothing but working on these for the last six days. Um, it probably shows. I probably look a little on the on the tired side. I haven't even shaved properly. But uh, I hope you've enjoyed 
because I, I have really enjoyed going through these and really digging into them as best as I can, really anal analyzing the works. As weird as this sound has actually made me appreciate them and enjoy them even more than I already did. I already considered these films among my favorites in the original trilogy at the top of the list, and that has actually been reinforced. These films... I'm actually tearing up a bit. These films are a work of art and a work of love, and they're fantastic. I don't care if they sold well. I don't care if there's some CGI issues. I don't care if there's some plot things or some person's looking at a distant spot instead of the actor they're supposed to look at. These films are fantastic, and I love them. And I hope you've enjoyed going through them with me. <laughs> See you around, guys.